I will be reading from 1 Kings, the 17th chapter, the 8th through the 16th verses. Uh, then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Thank you, Gary. I used to love that story as a kid. I still love that story. If only it was a jar of Nutella. I would be all over that. If you go to a Costco, you can get a double pack, and it's almost the same thing, because who can eat that much Nutella? Our family can. That's who. We can. Well, our reading today is from Mark chapter 12, and these re readings are actually related. They're, they're put together in the lectionary, and we'll see how a little bit later. But I want to remind us that Jesus is going to invite us today into an alternative reality where a person's importance is not measured by our usual standards. And if you want to follow along, we have the text is on page 1005 of the Sanctuary Bible. It's also in your bulletin. And it's Mark chapter 12, verse 38 through 44. But before we go to the reading, I want to introduce a topic to you that maybe some of you know does anyone here know what humble bragging is? Humble bragging. Jack, what's humble bragging? Humble bragging is when you say something that sounds humble, but somehow makes it apparent that you're really a wonderful person. Yes, right. So, or an alternative is that when you complain about something in such a way that you're bragging about something that you're doing. And so actually, if, if you were maybe noticed this about six months ago, or so, maybe five months ago, Harvard Business School did a study on humble bragging because they thought, what are the social benefits or unbenefits of humble bragging? And a humble brag, in their definition of a humble brag, is when you complain in a way that drops what you really think of yourself, which is positive. And so they did, they did 
three things. They, they, they had people listen to three different things. The first one was a complaint. The second one was an honest brag. And the third was a humble brag. And they asked people to respond how they felt about the person making the statement. So here's, here's exactly what they did. Somebody said, I am bored. That's a complaint, right? And then they said, how do you feel about that? Then here's the brag. People mistake me for a model. Not me. I'm not talking about myself. This was, this was in the study. Nobody has ever mistaken me for a model. <clears throat> and so that's the brag. Now here's the humble brag. It puts the two together in a beautiful way. I am so bored of people mistaking me for a model. <laughs> See how it puts those together perfectly. I'm bored, you know. So what they found out is that the person making the humble brag thinks that they're pretty clever and that they squeeze that one in there, you know. But everybody else in the world catches it right away. There's just no, you can't get it past people. And they develop an opinion of the humble bragger that is actually worse than the regular bragger. So not only do they have a worse opinion of the person who just says, people mistake me for a model, they actually think the humble bragger seem, comes off less sympathetic than that person. They also think the humble bragger is actually less attractive than that person, which is funny. So what they said is the, the upshot of this study is that if you have to brag, and you don't have to brag, I mean, if, if you, it's up to you, you know. If you want to brag, go, it's your deal. Go ahead. But if you have to brag, just go for it. Just brag, because if you humble brag, you're actually undermining the whole purpose of what you're doing. People don't like it, and they, they're kind of onto it. So. so just go for it, you know. Just let it rip. Get it out there. Or don't. That's up to you. Now, what the other funny thing about Harvard, speaking of Harvard, that reminds there's another kind of a, a, a brag, which is sort of a name-dropping kind of brag. And honestly, I think almost everyone I've met who's gone to Harvard has volunteered that information about themselves in a way that kind of didn't flow with the conversation that we were having. So, you know, how about the weather lately? Oh, yes, it reminds me of the weather at Harvard. Real, really? Oh, people see right through that. And wouldn't it be refreshing if people just came out with something like this? Hi, I, heard you, I hardly know you, but I really want you to be aware that I went to Harvard University. <laughs> it, it was going to come out in a future conversation anyway, so let's just establish my credentials up front and we'll just get past it, okay? That'd be, actually, that would be refreshing. And you're like, all right, we're through that. You went to Harvard. I'll... So... Why, why all this? Well, our reading today is about people who enjoyed being honored in the marketplace and making a show of their superior knowledge. And I'm going to ask you as we read to listen for what Jesus has to say about them as he invites us into this alternative reality where a person's importance is not measured by our usual standards. So with that, let's go to our reading. Mark chapter 12, 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. 
Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we get introduced to a group that we don't often hear much. Usually it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees who get a lot of the headlines when Jesus is talking. Uh, So we're used to those. Both of those groups were religious leaders. The Pharisees uh, were actually thought well of by the common people. They were nationalistic. They didn't like too much organized religion. They tried to have a life that was congruent with the law. uh, But Jesus attacked them for their self-righteousness. On the other side, we had the Sadducees. These were people who were involved in running the temple. They were connected to the temple and its worship. And to do that, they had to sort of accommodate to the wishes of the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire controlled the purse strings to the temple. And so they they were sort of the sellouts. And the people had a low view of the Sadducees. And as we remember, the Sadducees also denied the resurrection. But then there's this third group we call the scribes or the the teachers of the law or the legal scholars. They could, some of them were Sadducees, some of them were Pharisees, some of them were involved in the life of the temple. But these were legal experts. They knew the law. And when we're talking about the law, we're talking about God's law. We're talking about the law that matters to them. And originally, in the Old Testament, these were people who had a love affair with the word. They loved it so much that they would copy it from one manuscript to another, and they would do it with such utmost care that they would not try to introduce any errors as they did it. So they they were very meticulous in their copying of the the books of the Bible. In fact, there's a story that when they were getting ready to write God's name, of course, they wouldn't write God's name. They would write a four-letter word, not like that, but a... It was a four-letter word in Hebrew that was sort of a stand-in for God's name. And before they wrote it, they had to make sure they had enough ink in their well. They had to make sure that they didn't have a newly cut pen. Uh, Pens were made from feathers back then because a newly cut one might smear. And they had to make sure they had enough ink so that they didn't run out of ink while they were writing God's name. God's name was so holy to them. And also, if they were writing God's name, and in the middle of writing God's name, even if the king himself were to tell them to stop, they would have to finish the strokes in God's name. That's how, just get an idea for this love affair that the scribes in the Old Testament had with God's word, with God's name, and with transmitting God's word to other generations in these manuscripts. It was beautiful. That's that's the origin of these scribes. And many Middle Eastern societies had scribes. These were people who knew how to read and write, and that was a rare thing back then. Now, in the time of Jesus, in the New Testament time, these scribes or legal experts, their social role had expanded dramatically. They weren't just stuck in a dark room with a little candlelight, you know, copying words. That that had changed. They became legal experts. And so people would come to them with legal questions. 
And often legal questions had to do, especially in almost all society, always ends up becoming about land and money and contracts and things like that, although it was also about dietary laws and all the other laws of the Torah. So these were legal scholars, and they had an important job, and they would, they would come down with decisions. They would illuminate people's lives with God's word and God's law, and in, in the best sense, they could help people solve some problems. But in the worst sense, and this is often what happened, in the worst sense, they would start to use the law as a way of inflating their own importance or of gaining power or of gaining wealth for themselves. This always happens. It's very sad. You think about it. It starts off with a group of people who loved the word and loved God and loved God's name and had this deep desire to pass it on to other people had by the time of Jesus devolved in some cases into people who were using the law as a weapon or as a, a lever to get what they wanted for themselves. And this was a problem. And so that's why we see in this passage, did you notice that Jesus was pretty harsh against the teachers of the law? He makes some pretty strong accusations against them. And he concludes by saying, these men, and they were all men, these men will be punished most severely. I don't want Jesus to say that about me. It's a tough thing. Well, <clears throat> Jesus also refers to them devouring widows' houses. And we're not sure exactly what that means. There's several possible ways of reading that. The most likely way of understanding is that they had the legal expertise to coerce or to trick somebody into basically giving them their property. And the most vulnerable person to this kind of trick or this kind of maneuver would be a widow. Because, going back to literacy back at that time, it was almost unheard of for a woman to be able to read or write herself. Very few men could. Only a few, there's a very small percentage of all the population in general could read or write. But women generally could not at all. And if they were married, they relied on their husband to manage all the finances and all the workings of the household. And so then if they lost their husband, they're left with this estate. A teacher of the law or a scribe or scholar such as this could work his way into her life, into her circle, and wheedle her estate away from her and take it for himself. And Jesus objects strenuously to this practice of them devouring widows' houses. It's a, a, a terrible thing, a terrible thing. So... Another thing that we find out when we look at the life of these scribes is that um, they had a pecking order amongst them. And the pecking order was this. The scribe that knew the most about the law was the most important of all the scribes. And there was a way that you could tell who knew the most about the law. They, they all kind of agreed amongst themselves, usually, who knew the most. And it was this, is that if, if one person knew more about the law than the other the person with less knowledge of the law would have to greet the person who knew more about the law first. It was a way of showing deference to that person. So that the person who knew the most would let people come to him and greet him first. And he would thus accept their... That was a way of them saying, we know less about the law than you. You know more about it than us. And um, so that's where you see that Jesus says they love to be greeted. 
in the marketplaces. They love to receive the greetings because it shows that everybody thinks that they're, they're superior because of their knowledge of the law. There was one beautiful exception. There was a, a rabbi named Yohanan ben Zekai, and his name comes up often in my, in my um, studies, and I would like to get to know even more about him who actually was the highest of the rank of teachers. And I don't remember if he lived at the same time as Jesus or not. But he made a point of always greeting people who knew less than him first. And he even greeted Gentiles. So he was sort of a countercultural rabbi, kind of a countercultural scribe who kind of turned things upside down. I would like to meet a person like that. In fact, um, we have a kind of an example like, uh, like that in the president of our denomination, not the current one, although I think he does it too. Glenn Palmberg was the president before our current president, whose name is Gary Walter. And evidently, at the headquarters of the church, there was a parking spot that said, for the president of the church only, you know. And his predecessor parked on it and, and got mad at people who parked in that spot without, you know, being the president. But Glenn, when he saw that, refused to park in that parking spot. And I think Gary Walter's the same way. And the, the headquarters have moved, so maybe there's not even a sign there anymore. I really don't know. I'd like to go to the new headquarters and find out. But that kind of thing that Glenn Palmberg did, or Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai, when you have this right, but you turn it down, because you don't think of yourself as better. And if you met Glenn Palmberg, you'd know that about him. He, he didn't put on airs. He would talk to anybody. He was very humble, a really great guy. I really liked him. The other thing that Jesus says, and this is kind of funny, it's Jesus is an acute observer of, uh, of what's going on. He says these scribes like to walk around in their long flowing robes, which is a sign of their authority, but that they go out into the marketplace with their robes on. The marketplace is a different place than the temple. The temple is this sacred space where they would give out sort of this legal advice and they would worship, and that would be the place where you would wear these long, flowing, ornate robes. But then they, they just happen to wear these nice, long robes out into the marketplace, which is where all the social interaction in the city takes place. And so they, they kind of let that religious authority follow them into every sphere of life. So they're kind of like... Oh, am I wearing this? Ah, guess now you know that I'm a very important person. It's kind of like the Harvard name drop. Oh, this old thing? Oh, you know. God. I, you know. And I think Jesus probably would have preferred that these people go home and change first before they go out and buy their groceries. But no, they have to wear all this stuff to the grocery store. They have to go, to, go wear all this stuff to the fence line to talk to their neighbors. So this, this sort of aura they're hoping will follow them everywhere and people will fall all over themselves, greeting them all the time in every place. And Jesus is sick of it. He's come to Jerusalem and he's like, I, don't, I can't take it anymore. I can't, I can't not say anything about these rotten people. They're going to be punished very severely. It's like the Harvard name drop, you know. The real kicker is that the law should have taught them about humility. The history of Israel, which they were experts in, should have taught them something about humility. Humility is what God cares about. You look at the Psalms of David, you know, Psalm 51, where he humbles himself before God. That's the kind of sacrifice that God is longing for, a contrite heart, right? 
The other thing that they should have known about is that the only way to really have honor in God's eyes is to be righteous, is to act in a righteous way. And, and for them, what they understood righteousness was, is the, the Hebrew word is tzedakah, the righteousness that God talks about in the Torah, in the Old Testament, is, has so much to do with caring for the vulnerable. Not devouring their house, but caring for them in their need and in their want, and caring for the widow and the orphan and the stranger in the land. And it's also about being in relationships that are characterized by justice, not by the inequality of their importance. So these are people who not only are doing the things wrong, these are people who should know better. And to Jesus, this matters. If you know something, you're responsible for it. If you know a little bit, you're responsible for a little bit. If you know a lot, you're responsible for a lot. If you know what righteousness is in God's eyes, but you don't do it, there's a real problem there. And I think the sad thing is, and this is true in that generation and this generation, is how things change. How someone or some group of people, or even a person, and I'll say this could be true about myself, that you could be driven at the outset by a deep love for Scripture and for God's name and for passing Scripture along, a person like that or a people like that could get corrupted to the point where they use that knowledge for their own self-aggrandizement, for their own gain financially or in terms of power, or to prop up their own self-esteem so that they could get the greetings if I know more than you, then I'm more important than you. And I have all sorts of strategies for reinforcing my own importance. I can humble brag. I can name drop. I can wear my clothing, my, my priestly robes out to the, to, the, to the marketplace. I can enforce social conventions to ensure that I'm honored by you. But do I still even know what that word says that captured my heart in the first place? This is the trajectory that we could all be on if we're not careful. This is the reality. And it's happening in front of Jesus' eyes right now. So then we get an example of just how corrupted these things have become. Jesus keeps on observing. And we go now to the next part of this passage. He keeps on observing what people are doing. He, he finds that he's in the temple. He's watching wealthy people put money into the treasury. There were 13 boxes that you could put money in at the treasury at the temple. And they were, had different functions. Some were like the building fund. Some were like the general fund that we pay the electric bill with, except they didn't have an electric bill. But you get the idea. You could put it into a different trumpet, depending on how you wanted to designate your gift. And I guess they were made out of metal, these trumpet-like things. And so when you put metal coins into them, it was loud, like it was like, ting, 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 ting. It was like Las Vegas. Now, I know you righteous folk have not been to Las Vegas. I have, though. No, I'm kidding. I have been to Las Vegas. I, I, uh, it's noisy. All the coins dropping, you know. You could, maybe you flew through the, the airport. They have, they have slot machines at the airport. So just forget it. Anyways, Las Vegas is noisy. There's all the coins clinking all the time and the buzzers going off. Pew, 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 pew. Somebody's getting a jackpot. I think that's what it was like there at the temple. People shoveling vast amounts of money into these noisy trumpets, ching, 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 everywhere going down. And Jesus is noticing that these people are doing this. In fact, this was Passover week. So there were a lot of people making pilgrimage to Jerusalem this week. 
If you were making pilgrimage, it meant you had money. You had money to travel and you had money and you show up at the temple. And this was a thing you did once a year is you brought this gift to the temple from afar. You lived in Rome or you lived in Ephesus or you lived somewhere else. Jewish people living in the diaspora. They'd come back and they'd shovel money into these trumpets and make all this noise. And Jesus is watching them going, wow, that's impressive. Or not, we'll see. But then he notices Somebody that I don't think anybody else noticed. And what she did probably made very little noise at all. This widow, how does he know she's a widow? Probably by the way she's dressed. How does he know how poor she is? Probably by the way she's dressed. Probably by the way she carries herself. She puts in two coins. They're called leptons. A lepton is a small thing, right? Even a stan is a lepton the smallest particle in particle physics. So a lepton... Particle is the smallest particle, and a lepton coin is the smallest coin. It's one one-hundredth of a denarius. And a denarius is not much, although to some people it was a lot. It was one day's wage. So she put in one-fiftieth of a day's wage, all that she had. And she puts her two things in, and off she goes. What does Jesus say about her? Look at what she did. Notice what she did, Jesus says. Oh, she's put in more than all those other people together. Because those other people, they had money left over after they shoveled a bunch into the trumpet. They had plenty to live on after that. But she put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. She had nothing left when she was done putting it in. In fact, the word that Jesus uses here is that she put in her bion or her bios, This is the Greek word for life, biological life. We've seen before that CK is the the Greek word for self or identity or life in terms of life of who I am as a human being. But your bion or your bios is your physical life. It's like the widow Zarephath, right? I'm going to go home. I'm going to take the last two things that I have left. I'm going to make some food out of it. My son and I are going to eat, and then we are going to die. It's a really stark passage of scripture. That's what Jesus is saying about this woman's offering. She put in, we kind of softened it in the NIV, all she had to live on. Uh, She put in her life, her biological life. When she goes home, she's going to have nothing to eat. She's going to die. This is what's happening. This is what Jesus is talking about here. Her devotion is such that she's going to go do this. So in other words, uh, she really did put in all that she had to live on. And if she did that, she'll not live much longer, just like the widow of Zarephath. As you see now how these passages are connected to each other. Well, what do we make of this woman's offering? You've heard this before. Often when there's a stewardship sermon at church, this lady comes up. Oh, she put it... but. Think about it just for a second. Is Jesus praising her? Or is Jesus lamenting that she would do this? He's not condemning her. Let's be clear about that. He doesn't really say anything about the good or the bad of what she's doing. And you can make your own choice about this. Okay, This is a free choice. And, and, and the, the the purity of your theology is not going to rest on, on this one question, really. 
But it's an important question. Is Jesus praising her because of her selflessness in giving everything that she has to live on to the temple? Or is he lamenting that the temple is so corrupt and run by such corrupt people that this woman thinks she should do this? That somebody has told her that she ought to do this? The temple, that money should be going in the opposite direction. The temple should be giving her money. The temple should be giving her life, should be taking care of her needs, not the other way around. No matter how much the amount is, it should be giving her two leptons or five leptons or enough to go home and eat every day. This is what the law says. This is what the Torah says. This is what righteousness looks like. You take care of somebody who cannot take care of themselves. You don't expect them to give to you. It goes the other way around. I tend to think that while Jesus maybe admires her for her faithfulness and doing what she thinks is right, he's nonetheless very sad and actually quite angry at this system that has grown up from some people who initially loved the law to have now turned the law into a cash-making machine. So much so that they'll even, they didn't even stop this lady from putting in her money. They didn't stop her. Oh, okay, well, the two leptons, that'll come in handy Some, somewhere, they thought. I don't know. So it's difficult. What is this? Jesus cares about life. He cares about your psyche. He cares about your soul, your identity, who you are. He cares about your bios, too. He cares about your human life. He does not want somebody to give so much to the temple that they have to go home and die. Life is precious. So it's a mistake to give so much. Now, uh, I hope I haven't ruined this stewardship passage for you all. There's other places in the Bible that talk about stewardship in probably a much more constructive way. I just don't think this is about stewardship so much. I think it's about a broken system that Jesus is confronting in the last week of his life, and he's mad. And he says, here's an example of it. Those people who are devouring widows' houses just took the last two bits that this widow had. She's going to go home if she has a home to go to, go to and she's going to die next. And this is a travesty, he says. It's interesting that um, sometimes people need to give to the church or to the temple. Let's say church. Sometimes people need to give to the church because they're in a place where they have more than enough. And that after giving, they have enough left over to live off of and to have life. But sometimes the church needs to give to people when they have nothing, when they have nothing to go on. They, they're living on the margins. And I'm, I'm actually, you might figure out right now that I'm not just talking about wealth. I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about cash necessarily. I'm talking about all our other resources too, including our energy and our time and our spiritual vitality. If you're in a season where it makes sense for you to receive more than to give, that's important for you to know. You should know that about yourself. You might be feeling like you need to give and give and give, when actually the church needs to give to you. The church needs to take care of you. The church needs to come alongside you and be your companion and not expect you to put out so much, but to put in. I like to think about it, and we've heard this before, of having a tank 
Like you have a tank, it's full of fuel, but we call this spiritual fuel. And if your tank is full, then you can give plenty out of your tank and your tank gets filled up by other things, all sorts of things. You have plenty left over. But if your tank is empty, don't give, any, don't give anybody anything from your tank. You need to keep what's in your tank just to live. Let other people and other things, including the church, come along and start to fill your tank. That's, that's just common sense, really. Um, if, if I hope to fill, if I have an empty tank and I hope to fill my tank by giving out of my tank, the emptiness of my tank is going to be so apparent and I'm going to start doing all sorts of crazy things to start filling my tank. And I'm going to get myself into a whole lot of trouble and I'm going to hurt a whole lot of people. You cannot fill your tank by trying to give and give and give. It just doesn't work. Um, and also, if, um, if my sense of who I am, like these, these teachers of the law, if my sense of who I am depends on what other people think of me, then I'm in a lot of trouble. I'm in a difficult spot. The problem with other people, this is the problem. You want to know what the problem with other people is? I'll tell you. The problem with other people is that I can't control them. I can't make them do stuff. I can't make them think stuff. I can't make them say stuff. And if I need other people to like me, for me to feel good about myself, or if I need other people to think highly of me, of my abilities or qualifications or knowledge or anything else, to feel good about myself, I'm in trouble. And if I th want, need people to say good things to me or think good things about me for that to happen, I am up the creek. I cannot control them. I cannot make them say nice things to me. I can't make them think nice things about me. I can't make them honor me or anything. It does not work. And if I need it so badly, then I'm going to start trying to control them, to get them to do those things. And that's a whole other mess. It just doesn't work. What do we do to not be like these scribes, to not name drop or humble brag or wear our clothes in the wrong place? What do we do? What can I do if I'm dependent on what other people think of me? Well, Jesus is inviting us into an alternative reality, the true reality, where how we decide how important a person is isn't the usual way we do it. Not by how much we know, or which school we went to, or how wealthy we are, or how attractive we are, none of those things. And the alternative reality that Jesus wants to invite us into is the true reality. It's the one he and God creates, where people who are small get noticed. That's his reality. That's the thing about Jesus. He notices small people. He notices small things. In the noise and the din of all this money flying into these uh, trumpets, this little daughter of Abraham gets noticed by Jesus. And whether he's praising her or lamenting the system that she's caught in, it shows that his kingdom operates in a completely different reality. Are you familiar with Psalm 8, verse 4? It reads like this. What are human beings? This is the psalmist speaking to God. 
What are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them? God notices you. Whether you're small or big, whether you know little or a lot, it doesn't matter. What clothes you're wearing today, clothes of knowledge or clothes of fashion, it does not matter. God cares about you, your life, and who you are. That is sufficient for all things. He's enough for us, and we don't have to impress anyone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for righteous anger that Jesus has. We thank you for this woman's testimony in life. We pray that we would give you what we need to give you and receive when we need to receive. And most of all, we thank you that you are enough for us at all times. In Jesus' name, amen.